A few weeks ago, while researching for my last episode of Roseweiler Lane, I came across a paper discussing the synthesis of individualism, laissez-faire, and anti-racism. Mixed in with some top-tier discussion of Roseweiler Lane was periodic mentions of Azora Neil Hurston, who championed broadly similar views. From a brief scheme into research, she instantly came across to me as someone who was perfect to cover. Her life was multifaceted with her contributing to theatre, poetry, musicals, short stories, essays, anthropological research, and of course, literature. She ought to be a role model for the lovely coalescence of anti-racism and individualism. Two peas in a pod. Highly protective of her actual birth year, Zora at different times gave a variety of possible birth years. But thankfully today, due to scholars' diligence, we can firmly say Zora Neale Hurston was born on the 7th of January, 1891, Nassau Alabama. Her father, John Hurston, was a Baptist preacher and sharecropper, while her mother, Lucianne Hurston, was a schoolteacher. Zora by no means came from an illustrious or prestigious position in society. Her grandparents were former slaves. Zora was the fifth of eight children in the Hurston family. When Zora was roughly three years old, the Hurstons packed up and moved to Eatonville, Florida. Founded in 1887 by a group of black families, Eatonville was an experiment in black self-government at a time when many black people were politically disenfranchised. Zora grew up in a small, close-knit community that was economically poor, but rich with a citizenry devoted to self-reliance, both one's personal affairs and politics. Zora grew up when many whites believed blacks to be of inferior moral and intellectual ability, which it was believed resulted in them not having the full capacity for self-government. But Zora's childhood debunked this myth in Eatonville, where she saw the laws debated, drafted, and enacted by regular people. Her father was even the mayor of the town for multiple terms. Growing up in Eatonville, she avoided the widespread belief in black people's deficiency and the subsequent indoctrination of these beliefs. The then leading figurehead of the African-American community, Booker T. Washington, commented in Eatonville, saying that black people here are made to feel our responsibilities of citizenship in ways they can't be made to feel elsewhere. With an idyllic relationship between her mother and father, growing up in a loving household, Eatonville became Zora's firm home, so much so she often said she was born here, even though she wasn't. Her life was made unimaginably miserable when her mother died in 1904. Her father, then age 44, quickly remarried a woman half his age after his first wife's death. Zora's relationship with her father had always been strained. Unfortunately, he could only tolerate having one daughter. When a second daughter, Zora, was born, he grew extremely resentful of her. Zora believed she was by far his least favorite child. Following her mother's death, Zora was sent to a Baptist boarding school in Jacksonville. Zora showed a great deal of intelligence and was eager to learn but the environment was stifling. The faculty administrators cultivated an ethos that the primary function of education was to teach people their proper place in society, an insidious idea that did not mesh well at all with Zora's independent spirit. Zora's education was cut short when her increasingly belligerent father stopped paying fees and she was summarily dismissed by the school. With no financial support from her father, Zora was even forced to borrow money from her teachers to pay back her fare back home from the school. Without any prospect for education, Zora searched for work shifting from house to house, relying on relatives and friends' kindness. But finding a steady job was a challenging task. From her autobiography, it is immediately apparent that the young Zora would not simply shut up and obey. For example, she was once fired because she informed the house's matriarch that her husband was making unwelcome advances. While returning to Eatonville briefly, Zora and her stepmother's relationship ended in a physical altercation, leaving Zora back out in the streets looking for work. While searching for employment, Zora found a copy of John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, sacrilegiously thrown in the trash. Reading Milton was one of the formative steps in Zora's undying love of literature and poetry. 
Eventually, Zora wound up serving as a lady's maid to a singer in a traveling musical theater troupe. The job paid a decent salary, but the real wealth was Zora's encounters with the high society of college-educated elites. By the time she finished her stint with the musical troupe arriving in Baltimore, Zora hungered for an education. By now, Zora was 26 with few options for education. But lying about her actual date of birth, Zora qualified for free schooling, with the only price to be paid that she had to go from being 26 to probably 16 years of age. Working during the day and attending school at night, Zora began to excel at her studies and even enrolled in the school's elite wing, showing her potential as a possible scholar. Taking a friend's advice, Zora moved to Washington to study at Howard University, a historically black institution for higher learning. In 1918, Zora hit the ground running at Howard, becoming one of the earliest initiates to a sorority found by black women, while also co-founding university's student newspaper. She studied subjects like Spanish, Greek, English, and public speaking. During her first year of study, Zora's father died when his car was hit by a train. Too busy and too estranged from her father, Zora did not attend his funeral. As she progressed through her education, Zora met a smorgasbord of budding intellectuals such as Elaine Locke, the first African-American Rhodes Scholar, a leading figure of the Harlem Renaissance movement, an explosion of African-American cultural expression. In 1921, she wrote a short story that qualified her for entry into Elaine Locke's literary club known as The Stylus. This allowed her to rub shoulders with poets, playwrights, novelists, and an assortment of critics, now all pivotal to the Harlem Renaissance. Throughout college and after, Zora was a sort of vagabond, independent reporter, supported by patrons and any money she could glean from writing. In 1925, while sharpening her literary wit, she won two cash prizes in a literary contest. While at the awards dinner, she had a pivotal meeting with Annie Nathan Meyer, an author and founder of Bernard College in New York, founded in response to Columbia's administration's refusal to enroll women. Annie offered Zora the opportunity to study at Bernard in the coming fall, and aided her in finding a suitable scholarship to support herself. By the time she started at Bernard, Zora was the only black American enrolled. While at Bernard, Zora became a protege of the anthropologist Franz Boas, one of the revered founders of American anthropology. Along with Boas, Zora traveled to the Deep South collecting African-American folktales, Deciding to pursue a graduate degree after completing her fieldwork, Zora continued her anthropological research in South America. By 1928, when Zora began her graduate degree, she also published one of her earliest novel works, entitled How It Feels to be Colored to Me. In it, Zora explains the cultural shock for moving from her proud home of Eatonville to Jacksonville. When moving to Jacksonville from a majority black town, Zora described herself as feeling like just another colored girl, or that I feel most color when I'm thrown against a sharp white background. But throughout this short essay, Zora overcomes her feelings of inferiority by accepting her authentic self, embracing individualism. At the time, even sympathetic whites often viewed black people as downtrodden and miserable race that were perpetual victims. But Zora explained, I am not tragically colored. There is no great sorrow dammed up in my soul nor looking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. Zora was attempting to evoke a sense that black people were not just products of a system that brutalized them, but their own unique culture and values independent of this. Recounting that she was often reminded that she was a descendant of slaves, Zora retorts that slavery is over now, and the future holds endless possibilities for all kinds of people, if only we enfranchise them and leave them alone to get on with living. Zora finished the essay by saying at times she feels like a brown bag of random items propped against a wall. Next to her are a bunch of other bags, red, white, and yellow, representing other races. If you poured out all the contents of these bags, there are various priceless and worthless objects. 
But if you pull out every single bag, we could dump all of their contents in a heap, refill the bags, and there wouldn't be much change. The argument is that race is like the bags of random objects. The bag has no clue as to the contents. It is merely a vessel for individual items. Just like people of different races can only be judged individually, not collectively. Zora found more often than not, she felt coloured when surrounded by a sharp white background. She believed race didn't matter, until someone else emphasised it, and at that, usually someone in a position of arbitrary power. As her studies progressed, Zora became disgusted by the brutal subjugation European colonists had wrought upon people worldwide. She came to see it throughout history, the idea of race had often arbitrarily used to justify subjugation of others. Her time collecting folklore in the South affirmed Zora's belief that black people were not perpetual victims of circumstance, like many sympathetic white and condescending intellectuals of the time would have had her believe. But Zora saw a vibrant culture of self-reliance, familial connections, and most impressively, a love of language. Unlike many of her contemporaries, she refused to view Southern black culture as an aborted version of white culture. Instead, she sought to affirm black culture as its own distinct entity. Zora was among the vanguards of anthropologists who argued that black Americans had developed their own unique traditions, especially in manipulating language with rich epigrams and imagery. Zora believed black culture, speech, and art promoted the virtues of reliance and good-humoured stoicism, helping black people live through the pain and misery of slavery and discrimination. According to Zora, the ultimate virtue of black culture was a sense of internal freedom, a belief in the power of love and laughter to win by their own subtle power. A key message of Zora's fictional works is that those who resign themselves to a sense of victimhood will inflict upon themselves a wound more grievous than their oppressors ever could, by giving way to bitterness and envy. Zora did not want to languish in the sins of the past, and instead encouraged blacks to follow the pursuit of happiness. We can see this theme emerge early as 1925 in her play Colorstruck, in which the main character Emma attends a party with her boyfriend. But at the last minute, she refuses to take part, when she becomes adamant that her boyfriend is more attractive to the lighter-skinned girl's presence. Her boyfriend tries to console her, but eventually he gives up, and he tries to find another girl to dance with him. The second act is 20 years later, with Emma living in a small cabin with her sickly daughter Lou. Her old boyfriend visits after all these years, reveals he is a widower, and wishes for her hand in marriage after all this time. We find out that Lou is the offspring of Emma and an unknown white man. But the old boyfriend is unfazed by this, and says he will accept Lou as his own regardless. But Emma, through years of bitterness, has erected barriers and wrapped her life around a sense of victimhood. Emma asks if anyone could possibly love or care for her. After being repeatedly pushed away, the old boyfriend leaves, grumbling to himself, she so despises her own skin that she can't believe anyone else would love it. Her oppressors have won by conquering on every level, mind, body, and spirit. She's so defeated she even comes to believe that the lies peddle for truth, and comes to believe that she is ugly and wretched even when someone is expressing their affection. Zora advised black people to avoid expressing their identity through victimhood, recommended they become energized to make the most of life despite the obstacles. While studying, Zora lived in Harlem and played a role in the Harlem Renaissance, though Zora was something of a lone wolf. Of all the big names of the Harlem Renaissance, Zora was one of the very few that grew up in the South and had first-hand experience of Jim Crow laws. Many, such as Langston Hughes, Dubois, and Richard Wright, were communists as well. Zora thought that these communist intellectuals did not want to celebrate black culture, but to exploit it to their advantage for their political goals. Writing to Charlotte Mason, Zora explained, The things our leaders are fighting for are privileges for intellectuals, not benefits for the humble. Unlike her fellow writers in Harlem, Zora did not subscribe to communist ideals and had little sympathy for the Soviet Union, which she viewed as a colonialist power. Throughout her career as an author, Zora was chastised by fellow intellectuals for writing about universal themes instead of writing overtly political works that supported communist and anti-racist sentiments. 
By 1930, Zora had published plays, short stories, essays, and academic articles, but not yet a novel. This was a change by 1934 with her first novel, Jonas Gordvine, a semi-autobiographical novel that was very obviously inspired by experiences in Eatonville. What makes the novel especially noteworthy is its use of folktales, sermons, and jokes taken directly from Zora's experience studying at South. While the novel hardly seems groundbreaking on the surface, Timothy Sandifer explains, at a time when black culture usually was either ignored or belittled, such respectful and charming depictions were truly innovative, and Hurston's skills at dramatizing them were impressive. Jonas Gordvon was viewed positively in large publications and deemed an impressively original piece of work. Sales for Jonas Gordvon were solid, but Zora did not make enough money to make ends meet and could not write full-time. So she took up a job teaching at Bethune College in Daytona Beach. After a year, she returned to New York, entertaining the idea of graduate study at Columbia, but ultimately abandoning her pursuit of higher education, although still publishing her finds from researching folklore in the form of Mules and Men in 1935. By 1936, Zora earned prestigious Guggenheim grants that allowed her to travel throughout Haiti and Jamaica to research voodoo practices. While living in the Caribbean, she began writing her magnum opus known as Their Eyes Are Watching God, completed in a brisk six weeks. Their Eyes tells the story of Janine Crawford. Like Zora, Janine grew up in poverty, but despite this remains optimistic about her future. Her grandmother is a former slave, like Zora's. Seeing a pattern yet? Janine's grandmother intends to wed Janine off to a hard-working, but ultimately boring farmer, Years her senior, wants her to be a servant more than a living companion. Janine meets an ambitious man named Jody Starks and quickly runs away with him to none other than Eatonville. But Jody's luster begins to fade. His image matters more to him than actual accomplishments, and he commands Janine to cover her hair and refrain from joining and telling stories because it would harm his precious image. After constant parading, Janine stands up for herself and is beaten by the furious Jody, who demands her submission. Due to illness, Jody eventually dies. But with his death comes Janine's rebirth. She shows off her hair and takes over the store Jody owned and manages it with a great degree of tact. Though she experiences no lack of suitors, she resolves to stay single. That is until along comes a handsome, hardworking, and confident man known as Tea Cake due to his sweet demeanor. Though half Janine's age, the pair become inseparable. Their relationship is very similar to Zora's romantic liaison with the far younger Percival Hunter. Tea Cake contrasts with another character named Miss Turner who disdains black people who go about their lives happily when they ought to adhere to her idea of what virtue is, an idea that inadvertently accepts black people's inferiority to whites. Tikek represents the confident, good-natured, and authentic individualism that Zora admired all her life. Though their romance is abruptly ended during a hurricane, Tikek is bitten by a dog who infects him with rabies. Tikek's mind deteriorates to a point where he tries to kill Janine, who shoots him in self-defense. The story ends with Janine alone, contemplating how wonderful it was to meet and love Tikek. Their Eyes was received well and was praised by one reviewer as a work belonging to the same category of enduring American literature as literary greats like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. But Zora's black intellectual peers were less impressed. Critics like Elaine Locke praised her prose, but argued she did not come to grips with motive fiction and social document fiction. Zora argued that her fellow Harlem writers were pigeonholing black authors by making them focus exclusively on racial grievances. She mockingly said, imagine there's a black poet who wants to write about a gorgeous morning, but decides not to, because he'll be called a coward if he does not talk about the atrocities of lynching. At the time, reviews were either extremely enthusiastic or very critical of their eyes. Regardless of what critics once said, their eyes is now a renowned piece of literature that is easily Zora's best-known work. Janine, like Zora, struggled for equality with her partners. 
Zora had two marriages that ended in divorce and an engagement that was aborted. Although throughout the novel, Ginny attempts to assert herself and affirm to her husbands that she is not just a trophy to gawk at or a servant to command, but an equal partner deserving of both her love and respect, neither of which can exist independently of the other. Throughout her life, Janine learns to stand up for herself and ignore gossiping and chattering of others. In short, she becomes an authentic individual. By 1941, Zora relocated to Los Angeles and began writing her autobiographical Dust Tracks on the Road. Zora definitely embellished some stories and definitely had an eye towards her public image and persona, but Dust Tracks was reviewed well and was praised by many for its own style. But praise was not universal. Dust Tracks was panned by some authors for not dealing with issues of race and criticism of the US government. But it was published during World War II. Publishers were very wary of wartime censorship. They decided to remove anything too scandalous, including one chapter in which Zora unleashes a raging critique of US imperialism. While removed at the time, many editions today include the removed passages, thank God. During World War II, Zora had little sympathy for the struggling nations of France, England and Holland, desperately fighting the Axis. Instead, she catalogues a long list of violent abuses they have carried out in their colonies. But America is just as bad as its European counterparts for Zora. The then-recent intimidation and strong-arming through military force in Mexico, the Caribbean, and South America can hardly be ignored. She then begins her tirade against US intervention in Asia, writing that the British are occupying India, yes, but we too have our Marines in China. We too consider machine gun bullets good laxatives for heathens who get constipated with toxic ideas about countries of their own. The major players of the Allied forces all had brutally exploited their conquered colonies for centuries. Stressing the double standard in unclear terms, Zora quips that Hitler's crime is that he's actually doing a thing like that to his own kind. That being the misery that other white Europeans had doled out colonial subjects. But now they're on the receiving end. By contrasting the Allies' moral outrage against the Axis alongside the heinous crimes of colonialism, Zora stressed the need for colonial powers to constantly operate on double standards. Zora argues that colonialism is in part kept alive by the cult of the great man. Describing this phenomenon, she writes that if a ruler can find a place way off where people do not look like him, kill enough of them, convince the rest that they ought to support him with their lives and labour, that ruler is hailed as great conqueror, and people build monuments to him. Zora came to despise the expanding unchecked executive power of the president. She viewed FDR's New Deal as a way of appeasing people and making a paternal state. Later in 1945, Zora called for repeal of Jim Crow laws, but argued this should be done through the legislative branch, not the executive. Even if for good intentions, the use of such power opens the door to the law becoming null. She explained that, if you turn an executive loose to go outside the law in your favour on Monday, she wrote, you'll also give them the power to go outside the law on Thursday against you. She concluded that no country is safe from tyranny unless the chief executive is kept within the bounds of law, made and provided. If Zora saw the widespread use of executive orders today, her stomach would turn. Within Dust Tracks, we also see Zora's at times controversial views on race, which are wildly different from her other Harlem peers. Zora refused to think in terms of racial categories. Races cannot achieve things. They are abstract concepts. Only individuals can achieve. In this vein, she writes, The white race did not go from into the laboratory and invent incandescent light. That was Edison. If you are under the impression that every white man is an Edison, just look around a bit. Zora explained her iconoclastic commitment to individualism, saying that, the solace of easy generalization was taken from me, but I received the greater gift of individualism. After writing Dust Tracks, Zora moved to Daytona Beach, living on a houseboat, fantasizing about sailing to Honduras and uncovering ancient Mayan ruins. Still, the economic reality of the situation kept her far from the stream. Zora was a successful author with an impeccable amount of clout, but never fully supporting herself through writing. 
1947, she'd saved up enough money and lived in Honduras, writing her next book, Seraph and the Suwanee. After returning from Honduras, Seraph was set to publish, and a publicity campaign was organized. But then, tragedy struck. Zora was arrested for supposed charges of child molestation. A former landlord accused Zora of molesting his son. The charges were dismissed in court, and the son later admitted to lying. But sadly, the damage had been done through extensive media coverage. Zora was humiliated, and her book flopped. In this dark time, Zora even contemplated suicide, writing to a friend, All that I have believed in had failed me. I have resolved to die. But thankfully, Zora recovered. In 1950, she was forced to work a string of jobs, short-lived jobs, and writing in her spare time. Zora was outraged when she heard reports of working-class black people selling their votes in Florida Senate primaries. She travelled to Miami to attend the election and to be voters, eventually writing her observations in a piece called I Saw Negro Votes Peddled. Zora used this piece to articulate the value of suffrage, which is for her the most sacred thing that man has ever conceived of and strived for. Zora chastised voters who were single-shotting, only voting for a candidate and knowing the other issues in the ballot. Without voting for specific policies, representatives will begin to feel like they no longer represent the populace at large, and there will be a weak defense against the encroachments of the executive power. For Zora, every citizen has a duty not only solely for their own interests, but for the well-being of their fellow Americans. Every citizen has a responsibility to serve the common good by supporting men of high caliber for important offices. But this ideal statesman is not a god or a hero. In a letter to her literary agent, Zora wrote, I have no political heroes. I can take them all or leave them. Quickly after she published another political essay in 1951, entitled, Why the Negro Won't Buy Communism. Communism was all the rage in intellectual circles Zora moved in, but she was skeptical. Firstly, she viewed the Soviet Union as just another colonial power that craved dominion. Similarly to the socialist and founding member of the NAACP, W.E. Dubois, Zora questioned the sincerity of the Russians, believing that they are using black people merely as a political tool for their own gain. She was also repulsed by the idea of black people diligently serving the state in the hope of a livelihood, which to her sounded like a fancy form of slavery. Zora advocated for a system where individual effort was rewarded. She explained that black Americans would not abandon the idea of the American dream, for better or for worse. She posed the question why a black man would ever kill his boss if he could be the boss next year. It had been done time and time again. Every man is a king when he gets his break. Collectivism irked the strongly independent Zora. After meandering from place to place in search of employment, Zora's health caught up with her, and after suffering from a stroke, she lived in St. Lucie, country welfare home, where she remained for the waning years of her life. She died in 1960 and was buried in an unmarked grave. When Zora died, her papers were ordered to be burnt, but a passing law officer knew that it was Zora's house and quickly put out the fire, saving her personal letters and unpublished manuscripts, a gift to the world. Though she had been an icon of the Harlem Renaissance movement at her zenith, moving in sophisticated circles, her reputation quickly evaporated. Her name was relegated to obscurity for the most part. Her use of African-American dialect became markedly less popular, with some viewing it as racist and demeaning, though Zora was recounting from experience how people in certain places spoke. Interest in Zora was revived by scholars like Alice Walker, who found the unmarked grave of Zora. Walker's writings in the 70s did a great deal to revive interest in Zora's works, with more and more scholars turning to her writings and re-examining their relevance and importance. Since 1991, her beloved home of Eatonville honors her with a multidisciplinary festival named after her, focused on the arts and humanities. I can think of no better tribute for such a person like Zora. Zora was an independent thinker who refused racism because she refused to be defined by race. She was an individual, and individuals aspire, achieve, and excel. Races simply are. 
Like so many independent women of her time and colour, life was hard and financial independence was elusive. But she was always optimistic and always prized citizenship and the obligations that it confers on us. In spite of her peers' high-minded rhetoric, she could see the Soviet Union for what it was, a colonising enslaver of people. She is fiction to allude to the big issues in life, but subtly and through the lens of the individual, and not that of race, creed, gender, or any other hurting protocol. But what set her apart was the ability to identify and cherish the richness of black culture. She saw how black people develop sophisticated patterns of speech, dialects, and music. Her work is born out of the massive influence day of black culture in US society. Like many champions of liberty, Zora knew adversity and challenge, but she was driven to succeed by her unshakable belief in the individual, and the individual will always triumph over the lazy stereotype. Thanks Mo, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.